This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 27th of June, 2019. The topic is care after a suicide attempt. On the panel we have Dr. Fiona Shand, Senior Researcher at the Black Dog Institute and Clinical Psychologist. Annie Petherbridge, Support Coordinator at Wayback. Tim Heffernan, Mental Health Peer Coordinator at Coordinaire. Paige, our lived experience representative. Chairing this session, we have Dr. Vered Gordon. Um, I might start actually with you, Paige, and perhaps this is really the setting for this whole conversation. Um, do you want to tell us just a little bit about what you've experienced and also, you know, what's that been like for you as a family member? Um, so being from originally from South Africa, um, it's a bit of a complicated um, family situation, but I live here with my father and my mum lives back in South Africa. Um, so she was diagnosed with bipolar, um, one disorder probably when I was very, very young. Um, and she's had quite a, quite a challenge with, um, with her bipolar as well as anxiety and depression. Um, and in South Africa, the services are certainly not up to scratch there. Um, so a lot of her, um, challenges went unseen, especially as a family member as well. We weren't very much educated on um, what was going on for her. It was very much under the carpet. Um, she um, She's attempted suicide about four times when I was little, um, of which I didn't really know much about um, most of them. Um, my family obviously tried to keep it under wraps, um, which, we, which I guess I didn't learn much about until I got older. Um, and last year she had attempted um, another time, an overdose of uh, medication. Um, so it was very, um, very sudden for a lot of us. We, part of the family, we didn't really know that it was, um, that it was something that would come up again. So, um, yeah, I flew back to South Africa as soon as I found out from my sister what had happened. Um, and so I guess a lot of things go through your mind, um, when a family member goes through something like that. You, I, I think I felt quite, um, guilty. I didn't really know why, why she had done it, the reasons behind it. I don't think, I don't think a lot of us really do when someone's in, um, in that position. Um, also find quite hopeless being in a different country. I, I guess for some people, um, who have family overseas, it's feel a lack of control over any, any, um, I guess any, what's happening there for them and keeping track of, of their safety plans or, um, keeping, in touch with, you know, the doctors and psychologists. So I think for me that was quite hard, um, not really knowing where she was with her progress. Um, other family members who were actually with her, um, so her parents who she lived with at the time, as well as my older sister um, who lived in a different state. Um, again, I think my mum was in a position, she was suffering quite a bit of an empty nest syndrome of myself being in Australia and her her older daughter being in a different state and and had a lot a lot of things going on that she just felt she couldn't um hand on she'd been on medication for for many years um and um yeah so so when it happened we were quite shocked because she had hid a lot of things to protect I think all of her family members so we I think part of it was just being very un 
uneducated or just didn't have a lot of knowledge in in what was going on through her experiences for many years. And um, I think that's something that I've learned throughout this whole experience that um, when a family member has has these tendencies or if, you know, they've, they're suffering from a lot of challenges, um, I think families need to be involved in every every um, aspect of um, of their well-being and, and where they're at because if, if we can't, if we don't know that knowledge and know where they're at, um, it can be really hard on the family members as well, just trying to get an understanding for themselves. Um, I had to try, try and really understand and accept um, where she was at and, and realise um, that it was really a, quite a call for help at that stage. So she's well now though. She's um, She went through a lot of um, therapy, went to a few clinics, um, and it was at ICU for a, for a week when it happened. Um, and so we've gotten, gotten, gotten quite far, um, in her progress, but it's, yeah, it's been a, been a long road. So, yeah. Thank you for sharing that Paige. And it will be interesting for us to hear more about what you found out, what education has made a difference for you. So we'll talk more about that as the evening goes on. Um, I might turn to you, Fiona. What do we know about what people experience after a suicide attempt? Um, what did you find out and, and what's the importance of that? Yeah, so, um, I, I mean, I think one of the, the main things that we learned is that the first point of contact that a person has if they're either thinking about suicide or they've made a suicide attempt is really critical. So the study that we did, um, the, the thing that predicted future help-seeking was whether they were satisfied with the care they received at that first point of contact. So whether that's a paramedic or a general <coughs> practitioner or the emergency department, um, that point of, point of contact is really important. And, and the thing that seems to be really important, of course, is that when a person is thinking about suicide or has attempted suicide, they're probably feeling pretty awful about themselves and feeling pretty awful about the world. So any sense of judgment or criticism or harshness um, is pretty damaging in that situation. So there needs to be a really kind, empathic response at that first point of contact. Um, we also found that emergency departments were rated lower than other health services. So given that they're often the gateway for people who are in crisis, um, that can be particularly problematic. Um, and, and that was in terms of the respect that people felt that they were afforded. Um, and people also felt that they were um, frequently discharged too soon and with too little support. Um, lots of people didn't get any follow-up care at all or they may have been offered follow-up care or told they'd get a phone call but then nothing eventuated. Um, and Annie mentioned before that um, their service tries to make contact within the ED and the data that we've looked at shows that if that first point of contact is made in the ED with the aftercare service or in the home, then you do get that better engagement um, from the, the people who are using the service. Um, that it's very difficult to navigate the health system for people, particularly when they're feeling really vulnerable and they may not have a support person or a family member who can help them through. Um, and that having that care coordination role that services like um, The Next Step and um, Wayback offer is really important for people and that link into clinical services as well. Um, we know, I, I guess the other reason why this is important is that um, a suicide attempt is still the strongest predictor of death by suicide. So... You know, all the research uh, into the sorts of services that are now being rolled out in Australia, thankfully, shows that those services actually do reduce the risk of a person going on to make a subsequent um, suicide attempt. 
Um, and, you know, I wanted to come back to your point about involving family in care as well. And we did a review recently of um, what are the effective components of care after a suicide attempt. And involving a support person was one of those components. Um, and Tim, at some point, you might speak to some of the challenges of doing that, because I know there are some, some genuine challenges. People are often isolated or not ready to share what they've, they've been through with a support person, but um, we know that where we can make that happen, it does seem to, to be really important to the person's recovery. And so uh, I might come back to way back in a minute, but I might just start with you, Tim, and can you in a more general sense help us understand what is peer support, what is the peer support movement? Um, a lot of clinicians in private practice haven't had a lot of contact with peer support. Yeah, so peer support um, is an incredibly uh, powerful um, movement. It's a social justice movement, essentially, for people who have come out of, you know, initially in the in the 70s in the States and that come out of institutions and said, okay, well, we've got no life. What are we, how are we going to do this stuff? Because it's really hard. And so people getting together voluntarily to support each other. And that's evolved into a paid positions, which, um, which we're really promoting as a, a, a very strong and new workforce in mental health of people who have lived experience of mental illness or um, in the suicide prevention space, it could be lived experience of, of uh, suicide attempt, ideation, uh, bereavement, that people are working from that peer, peer perspective. So it's about um, sharing stories of, of, uh, of your own um, experiences of illness and recovery. And I, I stress the recovery, the recovery side um, is very important. So it's, it's people who can give hope back, hold hope for people and allow them to move forward with their lives and reconnect with their lives. So peer supporters usually walk with the person. We don't tell people what to do, but we're trying to form a relationship with, with that person that allows them to, to find their own directions and, and get back into um, the things that are important to them. So it's very much um, a non-clinical Thing. We have we have um, a, a service in Wollongong aftercare, which is very similar to Wayback, except that um, our support workers are all peer workers who um, who work in conjunction initial assessment with a clinician in ED, and we specifically look at people who are not getting connected to say community mental health, don't get a referral there, who are discharged from ED without without who normally would have no support, so. Primary health networks are meant to fill gaps, so the gap was there that people weren't were leaving hospital without support. Um, and um, there's some research being wrapped around that with through UOW, and hopefully, I think it's looking pretty good, pretty strong in terms of what's what's achieved. But you know, with anything, I think with that support there too, there's um, the ability to people for people to contact people on the phone after hours as well. So there can be issues around that workload issue for any person who's working in mental health about how do you handle the face-to-face -face work and if you're going home and also doing some phone work. So there are things we need to, to think about. Um, models of peer support in suicide aftercare can vary a lot. Um, where, you know, I'm part of the collaborative in Wollongong, which is a lifespan site um, for the um, suicide prevention. And we have a strong lived experience group. But, you know, we had a person 
a very beautiful person called Irena die um, about um, five weeks ago. And so we have to keep going um, in this space. It can be a difficult space, but we're determined to, to do that. So, um, you know, it's, as I say, it's a very uh, human space, but we're looking at other models of, of alternatives to ED, safe space cafes where people can go into a comfortable room which might have some peer support workers there and a clinician. We're also looking at um, there's a, the Western Massachusetts Recovery Learning uh, Community um, have models of um, respite houses where people with suicidal thoughts can go and stay in a non-clinical setting that might be staffed by peers. That's starting to happen in Australia. Um, it's, it's again, it's a, not a judgmental thing. People can have cl clinicians and use clinicians, but in that space, it's a space for them to, to talk about how they're feeling and do those, um, and just form relationships basically that, that start those connections happening again. That play, um, Western Massachusetts also has a, the support group, which is based on the Hearing Voices support group model. I don't know if you know the Hearing Voices support groups where people can openly go into a, a room that's facilitated by a voice hearer, hopefully, and talk about their experiences of hearing voices openly without any judgments and um, often learn how to, how to work with those voices and make them not not as difficult and get on with their lives without so much medication. Similarly, um, there are groups called Alternatives to Suicide. There's one in Sydney that meets around Marrickville um, every fortnight. And that's a place where people meet as a support group and can talk openly about their suicidal thoughts, about their experiences. It's for people who have uh, experience of suicide, suicide ideation, and um, talk about it without fear of being referred. So people, the idea of peer support is that the risk is held in the group. And, um, yeah, so I know with the group in uh, Massachusetts, they haven't had any uh, big issues with, with that group since it started. So these are the sorts of non-clinical relational-based work that peers are really looking at at, at being involved in, I suppose. Does that answer your question? It sure does. Thank you. And it's really <laughs> exciting, actually, to hear kind of more innovative ways of, of holding that space emerging. Um, so, and it would be great to hear a little bit about um, Way Back and kind of how do you engage people? How do they receive it? And what's, what's the experience like, do you feel? Yeah, yeah so like I mentioned initially, so um, <laughs> we are integrated into the hospital system in Newcastle, so we do attend those emergency department rounds with the toxicology team. Um, so that gives us a nice basis to meet people face to face. So um, as I'm sure many of you know, in an emergency department, it is quite a busy, hectic space with people running around, um, which is brilliant, keeping people alive. Um, but as a support coordinator, I get to go in after a toxicology consult and have a quick moment with a patient um, and just provide them with a momentary positive human interaction that they may not otherwise have had in quite a long time or they might not have in that four hours that they're in emergency. Um, so you get that chance to really kind of connect with somebody, learn um, their face, their name, a little bit of their background about what led them to that space, 
um, what was going on for them that prompted them to take the overdose. Um, and then you get to introduce the service, ask them if they would like follow-up, um, and then we monitor the um, system and contact them within um, 24 hours post-discharge. Um, so number of people, in fact, I think the majority of people will go home that day. Um, I think it's about 15% of the people that we meet will go on to have a mental health admission um, in a mental health unit. So the majority do go home that day and the next day we're able to bring them up and you know, so I might say, I'm Annie, I met you yesterday. Um, how are you going since you've been home? And um, you can have a little bit more time to kind of um, explore what happened, um, how they found that experience, what happened leading up to it. Um, and it gives you kind of a really nice starting point um, of engagement to kind of initially just get going right into safety planning. Um, so what we find is that um, meeting people in that very quite low point is, is, a, is a beautiful catalyst to start talking about um, what are the other options besides attempting suicide and what can we do to help you along that way? And so, um, Paige, I might start with first your mum's experience. What do you think your mum most needed after the attempt? Like what were the things that would have made or did make a difference in her <laughs> post-attempt? I think um, something like way back is hearing about it is probably crucial, that first point of contact. Um, my mum had quite a bad experience with the um, ambulance service. They, um, they actually wouldn't take her to a private hospital until they had that private health card. Um, whether that's dissimilar here, there may be experiences that there is, but we struggled to get her straight to hospital after she after she, she was found after the overdose. And I think um, she went straight into ICU, so she was actually um, <coughs> unconscious for a few days. So that first point of contact um, was actually myself when she woke up. Um, however, I guess being, not being, you know, I guess I'm still on my pathway to being a, a support or a Care was quite hard to know what were the first things to say, and I think having um, someone there, um, like someone from way back, would would have been really crucial in, in giving her that comfort um, that she would have really needed. It was it was quite a daunting experience for her waking up um, in ICU and not having anyone to really um, and she um, you know really really talk to and, and be open about the experience. She woke up with a lot of obviously felt really judged by every by the staff members in the hospital, um, which I think could be quite a common thing considering suicide attempts is still quite under the under the carpet, I think, quite a bit in some er some places. So she felt quite judged when she woke up. Um, and I think having having that support there to start with um, and encouraging her to actually talk about it would have been would have been the most helpful thing that could have come out of her experience. Um, she went straight from ICU with no explanation um, straight into a, to a, a mental ward, like a clinic. Um, and the only point at which I knew what was going on um, was actually trying to get an appointment with the doctor themselves because I wasn't given any explanation of her status. Um, so we really didn't know, have any knowledge as family members or herself, um, considering she needs to be fully aware of where she's going. And, and I actually had to tell her um, where she was going next. She thought she was just going straight home. Um, and that was really hard, not having a professional being able to 
explain the process and make it a bit more, bit easier for her. Um, so I think that was probably one of the biggest struggles. Yeah. And um, so Fiona, what do we, what does the research tell us of the important components of care after an attempt? What works and what doesn't work? Yeah. So as I said before, we've just finished doing a, a, a review of this and, um, there was, there was one thing that emerged really clearly as being um, very important and it's the only thing that really emerged from a randomised control trial and it was client-related, um, client-rated, I should say, therapeutic alliance as being the thing that protects people from making a subsequent attempt. So we looked at all the other service features um, and there were some that looked, you know, we, we were able to draw some inferences about what was important. I'll go into that in a moment. But, but really, every time we look at... Um, the modality of therapy or a service model, and then we add in that therapeutic alliance. So the extent to which the person feels that they're, 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 they're working collaboratively, collaboratively with their clinician towards common goals, that they're accepted, that they're not being judged, that they're getting an empathic response, um, that, is, that is the thing that predicts, predicts better outcomes. So that came out as, as the clearest factor in, in the search that we did. Um, and, and coming back to some of the other things we've talked about already, so um, where possible, engaging family or a support person in the recovery process is important. Um, Tim has spoken about the peer work, and I know some of the qualitative evaluations um, where there is peer support within the model, um, the feedback is generally that um, that is one of the most valuable components of the, of the service that's being provided or the support that's being provided. Um, Annie mentioned following up within 24 hours. And again, um, that seems to be really important in terms of longer term recovery and reducing the risk of a subsequent attempt. When a person is first discharged from the ED or from, from another health service, um, they're, they're often feeling very raw and lost and, and vulnerable. So knowing that they're going to get that quick follow up um, and that kind of reassurance that there's someone there to support them through their recovery, I think is really important. Face-to-face um, uh, -face contact first emerged as being important. So that first point of contact is face-to-face, -face, but then subsequent contact can be over the phone or some other, some other way. But it is important to get that person-to-person -person contact happening. Um, care coordination is important. As I said, people struggle to navigate the health system um, and often feel quite let down by the health system. So I think where you've got that care coordination integrated with clinical care, so working a care coordinator, working alongside clinicians seems to be the, the way of getting the, the best outcomes for people. Um, a lot of our health service delivery is not funded to support that very well. So when we think about if you're a psychologist working in private practice or a general practitioner, um, Medicare doesn't really fund that kind of work all that well, but it is important nonetheless. Um, so they would be probably the, the, the things that have emerged from the work that we've looked at as being the critical components to good aftercare. So I might ask this question to both you, Annie, and Tim, um, maybe if you want to start, Annie. One is what's the secret to keeping people engaged? Because as Fiona was mentioning, it's quite hard to get people to come to care and then want to stay in care. And secondly, what do you think are the issues where you, you make the most difference in the services that you provide? Yeah, yeah so um, kind of bringing it back to what you mentioned about that stigma. I think there is that stigma around suicide attempts, unfortunately. Um, and a lot of people that I meet talk about their 
feeling ashamed or embarrassed about what has happened and they want to know is it common or is it normal and um, it's kind of nice to just not um, I guess in the, in this role you, you 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 work so much with suicide and um, you know perhaps have personal experiences or um, know somebody um, you're able to kind of just normalize things and not escalate it and you really explore what's going on for somebody when they do think about suicide. So, for example, if I was speaking to somebody and they told me that they were thinking about suicide at that moment, it wouldn't be alarm bells going off. It would be exploring those thoughts and, you know, what is your level of risk compared to your usual risk state and how does that compare to other people who have attempted suicide and is there a time of day that you might feel more at risk and can we put in some strategies around that point? Um, you know, maybe a phone call with a family member or, you know, sending an email to a, a long lost contact or something. So kind of not um, panicking or not judging um, when the word suicide is mentioned, but kind of more just exploring it as um, any other type of um, emotion or behavior and giving somebody the space. So. Um, to go back to your question, what works, I think is as a non-clinical support service, we have the time and the space to really go in depth and explore um, what is going on for somebody and the time around those suicidal thoughts and how frequent they are, um, how intense they are, um, what has worked for them in the past and kind of develop coping strategies um, or you know, identify reasons for living. Um, we really do have the time to get into that with people. And I really feel that people value that. Um, and they can go away from their 12 weeks with us with a concrete um, safety plan or a wellness plan um, and, yeah, maybe be able to choose a different option next time things get difficult um, instead of suicide. You know, you can say this is a six-week intervention, could be 12-week if a person needs more. Some people will choose to have one or two sessions and then that's fine for them. Mm. They, some people might need more. We have to be flexible. So we really have to be attuned to, to what the person wants. We talk about person-centred care in mental health. It's got to be person-led care where we allow that person to articulate as much as they can their needs and, and then, um, you know, where our job is, is um, servants to those people in, in our work. And I think it's really important that they are um, able to choose that without coercion and stuff like that. A lot of people won't access services like, you know, my experience as a young person, a young man with, with psychosis and police and ambulance and things like that and, um, um, you know... Um, seclusion, restraint, um, made me, you know, the, perhaps the most suicidal I was ever ever in my life and I've never made an attempt but in, in terms of intent was when I was being discharged as a 26-year-old, 25-year-old person from Kenmore Hospital in Goulburn, totally hopeless, totally no, nothing there. My job as a teacher had seemed to disappear, my relationships had gone, I was on these... these medications. As I said, there's all this inherent violence in our system. We've got to recognise that stops people from wanting to use it. Those entry points, I think, um, are really important. They have to be smooth. And, um, you know, 
what what do you do? You know, how do we react as a public mental health system? I, I guess just challenging that <clears throat> idea that some of these people don't engage in services. Actually, I think what we're finding is when services are well-designed and flexible and adapt to the client's needs, people do engage, and that's what the data is showing from these Australian services that are coming out. The other thing I wanted to pick up on was you mentioned about um, the goals that people want to work on. And again, when you look at what's emerging from these new services about the kinds of goals people are identifying, one of them's mental health, but it's also things like you mentioned, Tim, um, so vocational goals, study and employment, mm -hmm. financial, housing, and particularly relationship stuff. So, um, you know, I think we need to be thinking about not just the mental health goals that people have, but all the other underpinnings of well-being and the things that people might be struggling with and that may be feeding into their desire to not be here anymore. So. Um, I agree with you. If we design services that are good, people will use them and, and there are good clinicians out there, but sometimes I think we still are locked in a way of working uh, to my mind, which is still very much biomedical, whereas a lot of this stuff is, is as you said, you know, it's uh, it's housing, it's it's relationships, it's it's um, connections. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and just going on that as well. So yeah, this I, this notion that people don't engage, um, there is a service gap, which I think services like the way back and like the the ones Tim has um, mentioned, I think they fill that gap. So. Like you mentioned, Tim, people may not um, be eligible or get a referral to community mental health, um, but they may have a job so they can't access um, low-income free psychology sessions, or they might not make enough to get more than, than the 10 plus 2 um, Medicare-funded um, psychology sessions. So there is, there is a, I think, a large proportion of people who just don't fit anywhere. And it's not from lack of wanting to engage. I just think that there is maybe, yeah, a gap, just a gap. And before we hand over to the audience, Paige, um, I'm interested then from your perspective for, for loved ones, for family, friends, carers, what support and what education do you think is useful? What, what do families need um, to know? I definitely think, um, I, th I think it should be a very integrated process when someone, when a family member has mental, whether it's mental health, um, depression, anxiety, bipolar, I think I think the problem is is that it, it's as if the one person needs to manage it and that person who is suffering must go to therapy, um, must do it on their own. And it's it seems to be, and I know from, from my family, um, I was kind of the only one that had, that learned quickly about everything in her life. And I have a sister and my mum's sister who, who just have no knowledge. And so they are completely... Um, basically stigmatizing um, my mum for what she did and they won't change their their mindset so I think um, if we were educated as a family potentially from from the start even prior to any suicidal attempts um, like um, like Annie Annie was saying that it shouldn't be a surprise to to anyone that someone's um, who's in that position is is having those thoughts because it shouldn't be alarm bells ringing it should be okay well what do we what do we do next what do we do as a family to support um to support her and so i think um for us as a family if we you know i think there should be services for for family therapy or just um how do we how do we manage a family member with um with those experiences and and what can we do in terms of even if, like you were saying any of the times of the day if if there's a certain time that that family member feels um, 
as if that's where they, they start thinking, having those thoughts or lulls in the day of, of what do they, you know, what can we fill those days with and where can we look at her diary or in terms of my mum, I sat down with her um, for while she was going through um, all her intensive therapy and, and where can we, what can we do to improve your week? Where, where can we put things in that will um, provide that support when you're feeling low? Who can you talk to? What are, who are the best contacts in the family um, that can talk to you? And, and in terms of responding to that, how can we respond to, to her? I mean, I, I learned a lot very quickly with my mum about how best to, to communicate with her. And I think um, learning how to communicate with someone in, in that setting is um, over the phone, especially because often whether, you know, a lot of, you know, adult children are living out of home and it, it's, it's not that easy. And even young ones, I think, should, you know, not that it could be a bit daunting for young people, but I think it's important to, to, for it to be a safe space in the family. Um, so I think a lot of education needs to be done there in terms of family support because there's just not enough um, within families. I do a lot of um, mentoring as well for, for Ray's Foundation and um, just a lot of the things that come out of there is that there's just, um, it's a very isolated um, to be to have a mental illness and, and to be a carer is almost quite segregated from that and I think it needs to be a lot more of a holistic approach and I've sort of learned that working within sort of communicating across overseas um, and trying to utilise our services here that we have through through Black Dog and, and all those sort of websites that can educate educate us. And it's, it's quite easy to access, I think, in terms of once we know um, as family members where, where we can access those, um, where, where that information is coming from, um, it really is accessible to listen to on, on podcasts or, or read and, and really helps us to, to understand we don't have to you know, I think there's free services out there that can educate us. So I think that's really important. Yeah. I, think that I think on the flip side of that too is that sometimes, because um, I work as a clinical psychologist mm -hmm. as well, and people are often uncomfortable telling their family members um, about what's going on for them because, of, you know, you mentioned that some members of your family do stigmatise and judge and that's the fear. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that fear is real, sometimes it's perceived. So I think as clinicians it's worth exploring that. If someone is saying, oh, I don't want to involve my family, starting to explore the reasons why and testing out whether, you know, their fears are, are, are kind of well-founded or, or not. Um, there are clearly some situations where the family should not be involved, um, whether it's family violence or domestic violence or, you know, significant family dysfunction. But as I said, where there is a, a, you know, some kind of family support, it is valuable to, to explore that as an option. I was just wondering because obviously in a clinical role, you know, we do tend to sort of go into the medical model and I imagine that, you know, like you, you think about existential pain and, you know, to be or not to be, that really it's, 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 it's part of life that it can really take you down and I imagine that if, if you're not hearing that from, from the patient, even the word patient, because I, I think Tim said, you know, they share the story of their illness. Well, I'd be suggesting they share the story of their life because it doesn't equate with illness. Anyone yeah. want to comment on that? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I think it speaks to the kinds of things that aftercare services are trying to address, and that is um, increasing the reasons for people to live, um, as well as addressing some of the, some of the deficits or the, the unwellness, whether that's physical or, or mental. Um, but, yeah, and I think... Um, you know, as I said, the goals that people want to work on are not always around mental health, so they're not always medical-oriented goals. They are the life goals that people want to work on and exploring reasons for living, as you would yeah. do if you're doing safety planning with someone. 
So there is this kind of, I think there, there needs to be this balance in treatment around, and, and, and as clinicians, we don't always have the capacity to do the case management stuff. So knowing where we can access good case management services <laughs> um, is useful. Um, but, um, you know, I think it's that balance between addressing some of the things that are ailing the person as well as working to increase the things that are going to support them in an ongoing way. And, you know, I think also being alert to the language that people use as well. So we did a bit of research with men around the kind of language that they use. They might not be direct. Um, they might not talk about their existential pain, but they might say things like, oh, I've had enough or I'm done. And so when you hear that kind of language, it's worth kind of picking up on that and saying, tell me a bit more about what that means. Yeah, I think language, as you point out, is extremely important because it does position people and I have to wrap myself on the hand for using illness. You know, often we use, um, you know, other terms and a lot of people who have mental health issues or whatever don't identify as being ill and it's, and it's a valid way often as, of living. My, I have a diagnosis which comes out of the DSM-5. I've had two in my life. I started out with schizophrenia and then I got bipolar one. Um, so I'm content to use that in a sort of way because the, the lithium's been useful for me, I think, like that sort of thing. So that side of it's fine for me. But a lot of people in this space especially, it, it is not anything to do with a, a mental illness. It is, it, it is with a whole of life response to a whole lot of things. You know, we can use language, I think, a lot differently so that we don't marginalise people as much in, in both suicide prevention and, and uh, mental illness. You know, when you were talking about your mum, Paige, and, and, and the way people are, are often um, treated in a paternal way, mothered or father, like we're, we're treated as children when we're unwell, we're scolded, we're, we're told we're attention-seeking for, for doing certain things, especially, you know, and that then you have the language around personality disorder, which is, to me, really difficult, um, <clears throat> you know, and, and then you have the reality of, those, of people being told you're attention-seeking and yet this group is probably the you know, for the people who are, are um, having suicidal um, issues the most. For Fiona, um, is there any research about the effectiveness of contracts after suicide attempts? Um, and I love these questions where there is a really clear answer um, and there is a really clear answer. So, um, and it is that suicide contracts are not effective. Um, they don't, people don't find them helpful at all. They kind of feel that they're a bit coercive. Um, so there was a randomised control trial a little while ago which compared a, uh, a no-suicide contract to safety planning and safety planning was the clear winner because safety planning puts the, the control back into the person's hands about and it gives them options for what else they can do. Um, so, again, Beyond Blue have the Beyond Now app which is a great safety planning app. Uh, they have a website where you can download a paper-based form of it as well. So, um, yeah, <coughs> safety planning, not... No, maybe contracts. could you just for people who are less familiar just talk briefly about what a safety plan yeah, is? Yeah, sure. So safety planning takes it, and, and Annie, you use these all the time, so yeah. pull me off if I get it wrong. Um, but it really is about um, firstly getting the person to become aware of what are their warning signs that things are not going too well for them. Um, and if you use the app, it'll, it might make some suggestions if the person can't think of them. Uh, and then it moves um, to uh, the, the person's reasons for living, so their motivations for wanting to be here. Uh, and then it moves to um, things that the person can do by themselves. To um, so it might just be that they can 
do something that's going to make them feel a bit better, like go for a walk or watch a movie or listen to some music or something like that, to things that are, some, I'm not using the terminology right, but things that are, are somewhat socially based, so they don't actually have to go and tell someone what they're, what they're struggling with, but they might just go and sit in the park where there are other people around or go and sit in the library or a cafe or ring a friend and go, do you want to go and see a movie or something like that? Um, if that's not effective, then it moves to um, people you can talk to who can support you through this, through to um, uh, health professionals and other kinds of support services like Lifeline, Suicide Callback Service. Anything I missed, Annie? Then the last one is access to means. How yes, can we keep the environment yes. safe? Um, I'm part of a local community-based suicide <coughs> prevention network and we're looking at putting together an aftercare program. So I'm here to see really what the essential elements are. You know, I've heard um, first point of contact is really important. Face-to-face -face is good. Follow-up 24 hours after discharge, peer support is really good. Are there any other elements we should be looking at? Um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and but I think it is supported by the research, and say that um, when an organisation is setting up this kind of service, it needs to look at its own culture um, and to make sure that it is um, focused on the client's needs and it's flexible and adaptable, and also the kind of people who are being hired into these roles as well. So the, the kind of person that you hire for this role is a bit special, like Annie. Um, <laughs> um, so, so, you know, I think making sure that those processes are right, that you've got the right selection processes in place, that the, the model is flexible enough. I think issues around peer supervision, if you have peers, um, but, but also very important is that how can you develop and sustain the relationship with with the ED, with the local health district, and work in that um, quite complex area? And yeah, yeah. But good luck. So one of the things that Beyond Blue is now doing is that they are installing a staff member into each of the EDs where they're referring into the service because. One of the challenges that these aftercare services are facing is that ED staff are not used to referring into the service, so they're not always getting the numbers. It's a constant battle to get the referrals coming through. Um, wasn't the case in Newcastle, but it's been the case in some other areas as well. For Annie and Tim, as a clinician in the private sector, how do I work well alongside either of your services? Because I guess often people experience separation, whether either being looked after me as a GP or a psychologist or an aftercare services, what is the best way for us to combine? Yeah, so um, with the way back, we like to stay in close communication with the GP. So as soon as um, a person engages with our service, we send a letter to the GP letting them know about that. Um, and as well, if the community mental health team or the acute care team are involved, we like to put in a phone call to them, let them know that we're involved as well. Um, and then if there's any elevated risk during our support time, um, we like to communicate that to the GP um, and also to their mental health um, care coordinator if they have one um, or their psychologist. Um, and of course, then at the end, it all kind of goes into a document and goes back to the GP because I guess essentially you hope that maybe then the GP kind of takes, takes on a bit of that um, as the main point of contact where someone might go for future referrals elsewhere. 
Um, I just wondered if any of you had any tips as a clinician working in private practice and working with a lot of clients who have made um, suicide attempts in the past um, and as you mentioned, Tim, often had quite negative experiences with emergency services um, and are quite resistant to mentioning anything that might, you know... Um, raise alarm, for example, for me to call any emergency services or call family members and things like that. Are there any um, maybe research findings or just um, anecdotal kind of suggestions of ways to work around, I guess, acknowledging that their negative experience in emergency services whilst also balancing risk and as a clinician, I guess, also protecting um, ourselves as well. Yeah, and I found something that's been helpful with me for working with people who have had a negative experience is to really um, put it back to them about what they would have done or would have liked to have happened differently um, and, and let them be the expert in the experience because they have been through it. And I think that's quite an empowering process for that person. You know, if you were to help somebody else in this same situation, what would you do? And, you know, put value on the experience that they had, even though it may have been negative. You know, there is value in that, in that it can, you know, help in future with other people as well. So kind of, yeah, really put the power back to the person. I think in just saying with that, I know with my mum, we had quite, like she had quite a negative experience um, with the health system in South Africa and um, when she went to see the psychologist after everything had happened, um, she she really she really did explain what um, what her negative experience was um, and you know what she would have liked to have had. Um, and so I think just having and then coordinating that to her GP as well, um, it gave just a better insight into you know what she also wanted as for like in terms of long term support as well um, and how she would like her psychologist to approach her in terms of, I guess, communication as well. Um, but like you said, it just gives, gives that autonomy and that it's um, not having someone tell you what to do or how, how you should manage your situation. It's, it's you, you have ownership over it and, and I think that really helps, increases their, I think, resilience through it as well. It's a good word, autonomy. I think it's yeah, great and I think a lot of clinicians, GPs, psychologists um, struggle with sending people off to the ED because they might not get this, the response that they're looking for or they might be discharged too quickly and all the, you know, sometimes it's a good experience, sometimes it's not. The ED space is just not set up for, you know, like EDs were traditionally set up to manage physical conditions, not mental health conditions. And so, so I think they've got a way to go not just the, the physical redesign, but the skilling up of staff and so on. And I do think, as Tim mentioned, that this increasing um, rollout of safe spaces of alternatives to the ED is gathering pace. The New South Wales government announced funding um, late last year to set up more of those services within each of the local health districts. So um, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, as clinicians, we'll have options um, that don't involve the ED. So... And Fiona, as a clinician, we often are straddling that difficult space, yeah. that tension between wanting to keep a person safe, 
knowing that it might not be a good experience going to hospital. Um, have you got any tips for how we manage that tension or how we sit in that space a bit better? <laughs> um, yeah, look, I think, you know, um, I, I share a story from a, a senior psychologist, a psychiatrist, sorry, um, who works in one of the hospitals not too far from here. Um, and, and he was being a bit blunt, but he said, I wish people would stop panicking when they hear about someone's thinking about suicide um, and sending them straight to the ED. So I think sometimes we can hit the, the panic button too quickly and we've talked about that a bit, but there will be times when the person is genuinely, feel, they're telling you they're feeling unsafe and they need to go to hospital, um, then you kind of need to, to bite the bullet and do that, I think. You don't have a lot of options in that situation. Hi. Um, I was just going to ask before the suicide attempt, do you have um, peer support for people that do present to a GP? So, because they're often quite isolated as well as the family and if they're not going to hospital, where what is filling that gap that we were just talking about? Just quickly, with, with peer support, so... Um, we're still it's still small, and you have a lot of you have peer workers in local health districts. You have peer workers in non-government organisations. In PHN land, we are looking at the patient-centred medical home and having peer workers as part of a multidisciplinary team with with GPs. It's being done in New Zealand. It's very successful with Maori, with one particular GP over in New Zealand, where where there is a peer worker who who can work like a mental health like the nurse might work very differently. Um, so it's something that's being thought about, but, you know, there are still a lot of um, gaps in how do you get referred to a peer worker? Well, it's not clear, you know. Um, you, you get referred to a mental health service, not a peer worker, or you get, you, or you, or you get perhaps NDIS package and you get a peer worker. It's not clear. It has to be clearer. Again, coming back to the research, when you have this care coordination role, Part of it is about actually developing that relationship with a person, um, but also, you know, the goals that people have around so greater social integration. Um, and uh, But that relationship can be really important. And one of the things we, we know from the research is when a person leaves a, a service and there is a handover to another clinician, that's a period of risk for the person because they feel connected to that person in a way they might not be connected anywhere else in their community. So someone goes on leave or there's high staff turnover, which is why I was talking about the, the service characteristics and the culture of the organisation before because if you have a service that's got high staff turnover, that's not good for, for the clients of that service either. Um, but, yeah, and there's some research I think happening the much more community-based research in Scotland, I think it is, or somewhere else in the UK maybe, where they're actually looking at just increasing the social support and seeing some reductions in, yes, and seeing reductions in all sorts of things like suicide risk, um, drug and alcohol, criminality, all sorts of other social outcomes. So, yeah. Um, in your one-on-one -on -one ongoing work with individuals after an attempted suicide, um, I'm wondering what you find helps give people hope and also I guess what sort of time period perhaps that that takes? Probably the most meaningful connection happens quite quickly after the suicide attempt so I guess that's why it's kind of designed to um, engage with somebody quite shortly after um, they've been in hospital. Um, so about kind of seeing hope it is really kind of exploring um, 
positives and reasons for living. Um, so, you know, what are you looking forward to, if anything? What have you accomplished thus far that you're proud of? And really going into those sorts of things with people. Um, and, you know, just getting down to kind of what is happening for somebody and, and uh, under the surface, um, you know, like it's kind of touching on multiple things like what you brought up as well. So maybe the first thing you see isn't actually what's going on. For example, um, maybe you see somebody and you think, oh, they have a gambling problem, so you want to refer them to a gambling support service. Underneath that might be, you know, the social isolation. So kind of getting down to those sorts of things. And then once you get to that, kind of working from that point on about how you can strengthen those parts of somebody's life and kind of, um, yeah, ignite that sense of hope um, with somebody. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. I think people often talk of a fog or a, that non-feelingness. And often I think it's just... Um, being able to be with the person through that time and, and be consistent with that. I think there's a Hungarian poet, I think he's Hungarian, Miroslav Holub, who, who wrote, wrote a poem about the, called the door, the door. And it's just, you know, you've got to, you know, at least open the door there. Outside there might, there'll be something out there and just, you know, allow people to not, to find their own way. I think the essence of peer support is just really you know, walking with that person and because you've navigated some of that system before, you can make their walk a little bit easier or, or easier to navigate. But um, ultimately, it does take time. That's why I think it does have to be flexible. It does have to be human. Paige, what do you think made the most difference for your mum? Like what helped her the most in her recovery? And um, I think she she had quite a few bad experiences with different psychologists, I have to say. Um she went through quite a few periods of um, her psychologist admitting her to hospital and putting her through sleep therapy um, purely because that was just their way of prevention, which I think made it really negative for her. And I think finding in her situation, I guess, in South Africa, there aren't really these peer support or any up-and-coming um, support services that I know of, and I think it's a, a lack there. But I think in general um, finding the right person for her to see, I think that was really important um, and once she found someone that she really connected with um, and I think I think that really for her made her progress a lot um, a lot stronger and I think just um, for us for her family being more accepting of it I mean it took us my sister and my her my mum's sister still a different issue but I think everyone else her parents actually learning um, about about the mental health and, and knowing where to support was important. Yeah. You may not know the answers, but yes. what do you think were the qualities of that therapist that made that connection? Um, I, I think it was just such a unconditional sense of acceptance of what she had done, um, not done, but what she was going through. And I think that I know all psychologists and all people in this area have no judgment, um, but I think it was the body language because I, I went in for one of the first sessions as my mum wanted me with her. It was just a sense of, I mean, even I felt it. It was, it was body language, eye contact. Um, she had so, the psychologist had so much awareness about how she approached that first session. Um, and I think, again, wording and, and letting my mum tell her story. I think, um, my mum had told me from previous experiences, it was just like, right, okay, this is what you've, this is what's happened. Let's try, 
put strategies in straight away. And I don't think that's necessarily the first thing that was important at that stage. It was like we were talking about before, the other aspects of her life that led her to that point. Um, it was almost like what had happened wasn't even spoken about. It was it was letting her tell her story from the beginning. And I think from my mum's previous experiences, having someone just listen and just and just sit there and just not be, right, I'm your psychologist, we're just we're going to put in place what we need to do. And of course that came in after, but it really was just, I think, and voice tone as well seemed to be something that my mum said was that she really liked. It was just a really sense of calmness. And I guess that's what everyone tries to do in this um, industry. But yeah, I think that body language and, and, and communication and wording, I think were big things. Very good. Well, I think we're pretty much out of time. So please join me first of all in thanking our wonderful panel. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.